Welcome to Our Plant Stories. And thank you to everyone who has shared this new independent podcast with friends, family and fellow gardeners. That really is a great way for us to grow. And I love that alongside the UK audience, there are listeners from Australia, America, South Africa and all over Europe. Because plant stories, of course, take us all over the world. There's an episode called Topiary, which I recorded earlier in this first series. That plant story about topiary crowns and orbs shaped for the Queen's coronation took me to a very special, quite magical place. I knew that this was a place that held many stories, so I decided to revisit it for an offshoot. The manor at Hemingford Grey, about half an hour from Cambridge, is one of the oldest continuously inhabited houses in Britain. It was built around 1130. In 1939, the author Lucy Boston moved in. She used the house and garden as the setting for her books, The Children of Green Know, which were published in the 50s. She laid out the garden, which is filled with old English roses and irises, as well as the topiary. You may recall, if you've heard the topiary episode, that Lucy Boston said you should never win in a garden. I wanted to hear more about her life and philosophy of gardening, so I talked to her daughter-in-law, Diana Boston. Diana, we're sitting in your garden. It's beginning of summer, really, isn't it? And I can see irises, I can see foxgloves. It's a beautiful meadow with oxeye daisies. I'm going to go and look for the orchids in a little while. Um, tell me about Lucy and... As you garden here yourself, what do you think her inspiration was in gardening or what her thoughts were? Can you deduce any of that as you garden where someone before you once gardened? Well, I know that um, when she was a child, she uh, used to spend her pocket money on buying plants, particularly pansies, in the market and trying to grow them in the sand that was their garden in Southport. So she's obviously was interested in gardens from the start. And certainly in their first married home at Norton Lodge in Cheshire, in Norton Cheshire, um, she made a very beautiful garden there. And when she came here, it was just virtually two fields. So she had a blank canvas and because she knew Levens Hall and the topiary there that was the first thing that went in and when she first came well when war started uh, the things she planted were shrubs and trees so more or less the, the bones of the garden went in during the war but she I don't think really started on flower beds and things she was too busy looking after the airmen and uh, entertaining them uh, and so didn't really start gardening properly until after the war and she got to know Graham Stuart Thomas who at the time was at um, the Botanic Gardens in Cambridge and he was the one to persuade her to plant old roses because, of course, he was the first person to bring old roses back again into, into fashion. And then he ended up 
I think, I don't know whether he started Sunningdale Nurseries. Um, and he used to search out the best of the old roses. And he also got her interested in irises and used to search out the Dykes Medal winners and Cedric Morris's and all the um, superior irises, as it were. So she really, when she came here, just went on making more and more space to house her chief loves, which were those. Roses had to be scented. If they had no scent, they got dug up and put on the bonfire. No point in having a rose that had no scent. And she started off um, with the uh, front garden, so running down to the river and had these huge, great, uh, long, straight borders uh, at right angles to the river. Uh, somebody had once asked her why she had so many straight lines, and she said there was no point in having a wiggle for the sake of a wiggle. <laughs> she wasn't one of the, In those days, you were supposed to put down a hose and then uh, use that for the edge of your wiggly border, and she would never have dreamt of doing that. Um, she imported clay because the soil's hopeless for roses, but um, unfortunately, over the years, with the flood coming up gradually, the clay got sucked. Every time the floods went down, they sucked a bit more of the goodies out, <laughs> um, and that clay never got beaten. And then she, um, having done the, the front, I think then she decided more in earnest to do the back garden, what we call the hidden garden. And in fact, the previous owners had had one or two plants growing there, but um, not very seriously. And she planted various um, specimen trees uh, in circular beds on the back lawn. Do you think she would have described herself as a garden designer? Uh, definitely not. De and definitely not. She, um, uh, she just... A garden, really, as she got the, got the plants, found a space for them or made a space for them. I honestly don't think that she ever, other than the topiary and where she was putting the trees. I don't think she thought of it as designers think of it now. So that sounds like her driving force was more the plants. She was interested in the varieties of the plant, the plant that she'd chosen to find out more about. That's what she was interested in. Yes, that was certainly what um, she was interested in. Never fiddly little plants, never the sort of plants that one would um, have in an alpine garden or little treasures like that. Uh, she, it's how she differed very much from my mother, really. My mother was uh, very keen on the treasures. Lucy was keener on the size and the... not exactly the visual impact, but... Uh, impact to all the senses really. When I took over I just went on doing what she'd done really because the, the form of it was all here. I mean she'd been gardening it for 50 years before she died so and from a field so 
I've never wanted to change it. Tell me about that. Tell, tell me about her connection. Well, the connection really goes back to the First War, when she uh, went out to uh, France, to Normandy, uh, as a nurse to a military hospital there. And she took... Uh, well, I don't know whether she took with her or whether she acquired one out there, but a wind-up gramophone and some records. And she used to... She found an empty room in the hospital and put up a notice saying, on such and such a evening, I shall be playing my records in this room and you're very welcome to come if you want to. And the walking wounded and the staff went and they loved it. And it was... Um, something very restorative, I think, in an otherwise, and calm, tranquil, in an otherwise crazy world. And um, so she did that all through the war. And then when war started here, and she'd finished um, work on the house, which finished in 1941, she decided she was going to do the same again, but this time to the RAF. So she contacted the welfare people at RAF Whitton, and then she got to know the Padre there very well, and he was very enthusiastic about arranging um, the gramophone record uh, recital evenings and bringing people to them, and they were so successful that she put them on twice a week all through the war, every Tuesday and Friday night. And she had offered the house uh, to the RAF for hospitality, convalescence, and particularly music. Um, they took her up particularly for convalescence, and they'd ring her and say, I've got a couple of young men, they just need to get away, to have a break. Could you have them to stay, and we'll phone if we need them. And then the uh, musical evenings took her off, the hospitality was allowing the men to come and picnic here in the afternoons. They'd swim on the river to her dismay. They used to hang their clothes on the topiary and she was not very happy about that. <laughs> but um, and seemed, it just amazes me that they seemed to have no... Um, they weren't anxious about being naked or anything because one man... Um, used to swim in the river and then he'd come through the gate and, and walk on his hands uh, up the path, not a suit of clothing on, and one of her dogs would bark into his face all the way up the path towards the house because the dog was a bit fussed at having upside-down human. <laughs> so, um, Yes, she had them here, and then they uh, would stay on. I mean, if they had the day off, they'd stay on and attend a gramophone record recital that evening. So she did spend a lot of the war having them stay, having them to picnic here, just chatting to them, and generally what she called looking after them. And then when Elizabeth's, um, Elizabeth Vellicott, her artist friend's, um, flat in 
the studio in Cambridge got a direct hit from a bomb and she spent the rest of the war years here. Uh, they used to do it together. It's funny, isn't it, to sit here now on a perfectly calm, beautifully peaceful sunny afternoon and imagine this lawn with airmen sitting picnicking? Yes. It's, um, it is funny, isn't it? But they did use it quite a lot, uh, I gather. But I gathered all that not from talking to her, but from uh, her autobiography and, and also um, from meeting some of the airmen after the war, um, after she died, who came back when I opened up the house. That must have been fascinating. Absolutely fascinating, yes. I made a great mistake with the first ones who came. They were just in a sort of mixed tour. And then we got to the music room and uh, I was totally overcome by the emotion of having one of the men who'd been, <laughs> been there during the war. And so he and his wife and I all ended up in tears really of emotion to the astonishment of the other people on the tour. I don't think those people will forget that tour already. <laughs> Diana led me up the stairs to the music room where, as she puts it, the walls have seen 900 years of family life. Tell me what would have happened here. Uh, they would have come in in the evenings to uh, sit down and the room is furnished with um, mattresses and uh, an old car seat. It's still furnished in the same way um, because Lucy uh, suddenly got told that they were going to bring a busload of airmen and she only had uh, a sofa and five chairs. And uh, so they would have come in and sat around in the room. The most I've counted in one evening is 36 of them. But of course they were youngsters, they could sit on the floor and they sat down the stairs, sat in the old fireplace. And it was very special for them. It, they could unwind, they could relax, they could just switch off from the hell of the war, really, and just listen to music. And some came again and again. They kept um, a visitor's book, and on one side we've got who came, and on the other side Lucy's plan for what they were going to listen to that evening. And when she drew up her lists, what was she looking for? What was the mix, do you think, that she put into that? Well, they were always classical music. I don't know whether for Ehrman's Choice or whether some evenings she they brought their own records. Um, I, there's a man who came to all the gramophone record recitals who um, was obviously an artist, and he's done a pastel of them dancing in here, so... I don't think that was too classical music. I think somebody must have had, or maybe Lucy had. I've not been through all her records. I've certainly, um, all the classical ones are catalogued. You can see they've all got their numbers on. And, um, but I think 
but there's still piles more upstairs. And then uh, the plan, working through the plan takes about two hours. And those men didn't exactly then rush off back to base. And so they used to then choose what they were going to listen to. And ended up with, um, very often ended up with Abide With Me, which we could perhaps just hear a bit of. So, uh, Lucy, the first um, gramophone record recital, she used whatever gramophone she had, I'm not sure what it was, and decided that the quality wasn't good enough. So I don't know whether she advertised or how she got it, but a man called Mr. Toller lent her a gramophone for the duration of the war. So we lift the lid and then put on the gramophone, put on the record rather, um, shellac uh, record and um, then obviously it's wind up and then switch on the turntable and so fibre needles which have to be sharpened regularly with the fibre needle sharpeners so it's all quite hard work really and winding and sharpening
the most poignant bit is thinking there's Zalman coming um, week after week and then not coming anymore. You can see photographs of that extraordinary music room on the website ourplantstories.com. It seems to me that during the war, the manor house and garden would at times have been full of people picnicking on the lawns, swimming in the river, listening and perhaps sometimes dancing too to the records. And later in her life, Lucy Boston found another way to fill those places. She started the Green No books um, in... Well, the first one was published in 1954 when she was 62, so the beginning of the 50s. And she had two reasons, she gave two reasons for having um, started that. One was that she wanted to people the house with its own family. And um, the second was that uh, money, of course the value of money changed completely after the war. And... uh, so she, it got to the stage when she needed to earn, so she decided to write. And the books were a success. So, um, That's a small insect thinking that the microphone is possibly is a, flower, a flower. thistle. <laughs> sort of thistle covered, <laughs> coloured. So she set the books here and peopled the house and the garden with those children. Yes, that's right. Yes, um, Stranger at Green Now takes play, the one with the gorilla takes place completely in the garden. Um, the river Green Now takes place on the river and in the garden. What's, what's your favourite bit about or part of the garden? That is a fairly impossible... uh, It depends on the time of year. It's an impossible question otherwise. I, um, at the moment, I love the Rose Garden with its narrow paths and huge great amount of space, which is just solid with roses and uh, herbaceous all flowering their socks off and buzzing with bees. at night, I think it's the hidden garden. You almost feel as if uh, things there are dancing. They've got some moonlight ballet that they do. <laughs> um, yes, I think there's... Well, it's just a magical place, actually. <laughs> it doesn't, doesn't need a favourite place. It just needs one to have the time to stop and enjoy it. It's one of the advantages of getting older. One's slower, so one has a bit more time to stop and stare. If you have enjoyed this offshoot but haven't heard the Topri episode, do take a listen and hear about the Topri crowns made for the Queen's coronation, Find out about one of the oldest topiary gardens in the world, it's in Cumbria, and learn how to create your own topiary. This podcast is born out of a passion for plants and for audio, and it's a completely independent production, produced and presented by me, Sally Flatman. Mm-hmm.